We're continuing this series that we began now seven weeks ago on what the church is. We've called it the people of God because at at the heart of the church, it is the people of God. And this series in many ways is a reaction to uh, probably a a trend that we see in culture currently and something that is trending in especially kind of millennial perceptions of the Christian life. And the trend is this, that most people in our day and age as Christians don't actually recognize or hold themselves a biblical view of what the church is. They have some culturally conditioned ideas. They have maybe a few preconceived notions, but their opinion of what the church is is not shaped by what the Bible says the church is or even what Jesus says the church is. I've been guilty of this myself, but, but many of us have said at some point, I love Jesus, I just hate the church. The problem is that we're told in Scripture that Jesus loved the church so much that he died for it. Uh, so to hate the church it doesn't quite square with the entity that Christ gave his very life for. And so we've been asking this question, okay, well, if, if we are to love the church, what is the church? What are the marks of the church? What changes something from being a breakfast club to being a church? Or what makes something with church in its name not a church? The reality is that just because you put church on the sign does not a church make. Let me give you an example. The Church of Satan. Uh, All of us would look at that and say the name church is in the title, but is this actually a church as the Bible talks about it? Is this the church Jesus gave his life for, the Church of Satan, founded by Anton LaVey? Wrote a paper on it a while back, sorry. Um, No, we would say no. Or or even if you were to put, um, talk about something like the the first church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, Mormonism, right? We would say it has church in the name, but probably not the church the New Testament is talking about. And so, How would we say or how would we define the parameters of a church? At what point does it stop being some bros hanging out at Starbucks and become a congregation? And and there's a a twofold hope behind this. I'm just not, my hope is not to just throw a lot of empty theology at you so you can impress your friends. It's like magic tricks or parlor tricks in any way. My hope is that this, this is practical for us. A practical one because I know that there's people here who are currently looking for a church. You, you come on Sunday nights and you meet with us here, um, but you're looking for a church to become a member at, to make that covenant of membership with. And so I hope this is helping you in that search. Uh, on the same, in the same vein as that, the reality is that at some point or another, all of us will find ourselves looking for a new church unless you are incredibly blessed and live in Tampa your entire life. But I think that probably won't happen for most of us. And so there will come a time where you and your wife or your husband, or your children, you're going to have to make that decision. So I hope we're laying a framework here for how we can decide what body of believers we're willing to sit and make a covenant with in membership. But beyond that, and maybe even more practical than that, I hope that as we talk about, hey, here's the marks of the church, here's the things that that God wants from his people, I hope that we're looking at what we do here as a part of Bay Life Church, as a ministry of Bay Life Church, and saying, hey, We're falling short in this. We need to do this better. If this is what the Lord expects of his people, we need to fix this. Or uh, maybe there are things we're doing well. And my hope is that as we walk through these marks of the church, we can celebrate, hey, praise God that here at Bay Life Church and here at the College and Career Ministry, God has seen fit by his spirit to give us the ability to do these things with excellence. So we've tackled these marks of the church, that the church is a people of the word, that the church is a confessing people, that we're evangelistic, that we make disciples. 
that we're a communal people, and that's what we ended on several weeks ago. That the church is not simply isolated and segmented members of a body, but it is a communal living organism. And this is why you cannot sit in your room in your underwear with a bag of Cheetos and listen to Matt Chandler sermons and Hillsong records and call it church. Maybe I'm speaking from experience. Um, Because the reality is that there is a community that is part of the church. Part of being a part of the body is communing and fellowshipping with other members of the body. And that doesn't happen when the door is closed and you're alone in your room. Many of us are far too individualistic when we talk about salvation. Jesus died to save me. True. Jesus also died to save us. He saved us at this time, in this place, at this point in history, in this city, with the intention of we who are his people being gathered together into one body, maybe across many locations, but one body. So we're continuing this discussion of what it means, or what the marks, rather, of the church are, and we come to this question of worship. I mentioned earlier tonight that we read scripture because we believe the word of God calls us to worship rather than worship kind of getting us ready to hear the word. And tonight I want to spend some time talking about the worship of the church. What should the church's worship look like? What should it be marked by? Now you may or may not be aware of this, but for the last 50 years in Western Christianity, there's been a war raging. It is called the worship war. And if you Google it, you're going to find about 600 articles on it. And essentially, it has taken place in every denomination except for Roman Catholicism because they kind of already have the worship thing like set in stone. Um, But it's taken place in every denomination pretty much throughout the West. And the questions that people are asking is, what is acceptable when the people of God come together and worship? Can we move away from choirs and pipe organs and and put in like a drum set? Uh, what, What if we put one electric guitar? What about two? At what point does this become a rock concert and no longer a worship set? What about lights? Can, can we incorporate lights or should we stick to candles? Or, or what about smoke machines? Does that become a production? This has been a debate, and it may sound silly to you, but it's divided churches for the last 50 years. People have been splitting, uh, and there has been a war raging about what is acceptable, um, what content and what aesthetically and visually, what is allowable in the church, and at what point does it cease to be worship, and at what point does it become a rock concert or a production? Now, um, this has ended up in a lot of hair splitting, and, and I have friends and family who would say that it, as soon as a guitar hits the stage, the Holy Spirit has left the building. Uh, I would disagree with them a lot. Uh, obviously, there was a few guitars up here, and I think the Holy Spirit's present. Um, so, so I just want you to hear me, that, that when we talk about worship, I have no interest in feeding into the worship wars. I have no interest in telling you that, that sonically, this is what the Lord would prefer. Jesus loves ska bands and not rock bands, or Jesus loves this and not that, because I really do think that our God is a creative God, uh, that he expresses himself creatively uh, throughout the cosmos, throughout scripture. If you notice just the sheer number of cultural expressions through which God expresses himself, it is obvious that he is creative. The Bible contains poetry, biography, letters, songs, 
God inhabits a temple, which is a form of architecture, right? So that's another expression of culture. So I, I have no interest in telling you what genre of music the Lord is most interested in. If you think hymns are better than rock bands or, or whatever, that's, that's fine. What I am concerned about and what I think the chief concern of Scripture is, is not the aesthetics, not what our worship looks like, but what our worship is about, what our worship is marked by and concerned with. And so I hope we can have a conversation about what the people of God and the worship of the people of God should be marked by. Now, I recognize up front that that all of us, if you've grown up in the church, grew up in the generation where we recognized very loudly and a lot that worship is not just the songs you sing, but it is everything that you do in your life to honor the Lord. And so I get that. Uh, so let me just head that off, that, that I recognize worship is not just songs, it is a lifestyle. But you cannot deny the overwhelming call of Scripture is that the people of God would sing. We read from Psalm, we read from Psalms 95, sing to the Lord. And so... Um, It is this strange thing that we find ourselves in, this strange condition that God has called us as his people when we gather to sing of his goodness and what he's done. And so in Colossians, um, we begin to ask the question of why are we singing? I, I don't know what your background is. I know there's a lot of people from a variety of backgrounds, but I wonder for those of us who haven't grown up in the church, how odd it was to first come to church and experience what the church looks like. Because it is a weird thing that we do here week in and week out. It is not how most people would choose to spend their Sunday nights or Sunday mornings or Saturday nights. In fact, I wonder what it looks like to talk to your friends who have not been to church and to try and sell them on it. Hey, would you like to come to church with me? Sure, what do you do? Well, we sing some songs, the band's really good. Oh, so it's a concert. Well, no, not exactly. Um, And there's this guy who stands up and he talks for about 30, 40 minutes. Oh, cool, so it's like a lecture, it's like a classroom. No, because you can't really ask questions um, until the end. You can maybe say amen or throw up a fist bump, but that's pretty much all the participation there is. Okay, so, so what, what is it? Well, I mean, we have these very small portions of bread and grape juice that we eat, so it's like a really bad dinner with not enough food. Um, no, I, I, just, I, I can't imagine what it looks like for somebody on the outside coming in. And so it's worth asking, why do we sing? Why is it something that it, that it seems like marks every Christian denomination throughout all of history? Why is it when the people of God come together, they come together around the word and singing? Zyda read for us from Ephesians. And Paul repeats essentially the same thing in Colossians chapter 3 where we are. Uh, chapter 3, verse 16, the apostle Paul says this, Let the word... Of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, the first answer, the simplest answer, is that we sing because God said so. And that, that would or should be a sufficient answer. But I do think that in Ephesians, which we read earlier, and in Colossians, Paul actually gives us more than just because I said so, as far as a reason for why when we come together, the people of God sing. He actually lays out two things specifically in this text. We find them again in verse 16. He says that we should be teaching 
and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And almost as if to explain how to do that, he says, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts towards God. Paul says this, there are two things that you should be doing in your worship. The first is teaching. The second is admonishing. Now, let me explain what these mean and why it means that worship through song is an important part of what we do in the church. The first thing he says that worship is for is teaching. Uh, Now, I want you to know that that these reasons are going to sound self-serving. Paul understands, first and foremost, you are singing to God as an act of worship to him. But it seems as though Paul is saying that worship also does something to us when we gather. So the first thing he says is that we worship, or as we worship in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, we are teaching. For many of us, we primarily think of the teaching in a service as what I do or what Mark does or whatever your pastor does at whatever church you go to. We think that we primarily receive teaching in church through the pastor standing up here and teaching. But this is just not the case. Keith Getty, who helped write the hymn that we sang before I got up here in Christ alone. Uh, he gave this lecture at my seminary that Corey and Gabe and I went to a number of years ago, and he was just pleading with the people there who were mostly worship leaders to pick better songs. Uh, and he didn't go so far as to say your songs suck, uh, but he, he almost went so far as to say your songs are pretty bad. We have to pick better songs. And, and this is what he said, and it stuck with me for a long time. The people of God don't simply learn by what is preached on the stage. They learn just as much about who God is and what he's done through the songs that they sing. And there are many, many, many instances where you and I will walk out of this service and not remember a single thing that came from this pulpit, but you will remember what you sang from this PowerPoint screen. And Paul recognizes this, that we sing partially because it's teaching us We're learning things about God as we sing these things about God back to him. As we sing and proclaim these truths about who God is and what he's done, it's doing something to us. It's shaping us. He goes on, he says, not only should we teach, but we should admonish. And this is a word that doesn't get used in our day and age very often. So so little is it used that I actually had to look it up um, according to the internet. So, take this for whatever it's worth. The definition of admonish, actually there's two or three, all of them fit with what Paul is saying, but the condensed version, admonish means to warn, to urge somebody to give them advice or correct them in error. And so Paul says, teach one another, but also urge, warn, and correct one another through songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Because once again, Paul recognizes We are shaped and we are formed by the songs that we sing. And as we sing together in this room to the Lord, it's almost as if as we hear our brothers and sisters' voices that they're reminding us of true things too. As we hear other believers proclaiming the truths about God, we are reminded of who God is and what he's done. It shapes us, it forms us, it steers us, it corrects us. To hear Corey say in Christ alone, my hope is found. And for us to sing that together, that is for us to remind one another of this truth that there is no salvation or no hope apart from Christ Jesus. So worship doesn't just teach us, it shapes us. 
And, and, and I think we can maybe go a step further. Uh, some of you are maybe country music fans. I don't quite get that, but I still love you, and I respect you. So hear me affirm you first and foremost. Uh, but there was a, a country singer named John Campbell who is a big, big deal. And I only say, I only know this because I looked him up. Um, but he was hugely successful, number of Grammys. And around 2009, 2010, John Campbell was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And so he and his family made this decision that while he was still present mentally, while he was still competent, that he was going to embark on this one final world tour. And it was something like 400 dates, which is insane. Uh, and so he was going to do this farewell tour while he was still able to do it before the disease uh, really started to take hold. There's a documentary about this farewell tour, and it's, it's heartbreaking in many ways. If you're not familiar with the effects of Alzheimer's, it's crushing. Uh, you lose your memories. You lose people's faces. Uh, there comes a point where you lose people who you've known your whole life. And I was watching clips of this documentary, and there's a, a scene where he's He's sitting with his current wife, and he's watching a home movie of his previous wife. And he says, who, who is that lady? She says, that was your wife. You were married to her for 16 years. Oh, that's right. Who is that guy? That's you. Um, that was you a long time ago, but that's you. Uh, another clip. Uh, he's standing on the stage, and he turns around, and he looks at the band, and he says, I don't really know who these people are, but we're going to play some songs. But when he sang and when he played, he played those songs just as well as if you'd written them yesterday. The music was the last thing that left him. There's a worship leader out of Scotland, Ireland, I'm sorry, who recounts something similar. Uh, and he talks about his grandfather who had Alzheimer's disease, who spent his whole life in the church. And he said, my grandfather couldn't remember my face and he couldn't remember my name, but he remembered the hymns of the church because the music of the people of God shapes the people of God in ways that we can't even understand. It's the last thing to go for so many people. So we're not just singing songs because that's fun or that's a nice thing to do. We're singing songs, one, because God commands it, two, because it is shaping us and reminding us of who God is. And as things grow difficult and as life grows weary, we look back to the word of God and to the songs that we've sung and we remind ourselves of things that are true that we might have forgotten. St. Augustine says it so beautifully as he always does. That's why he's a saint. He says this, so then my brothers, let us sing now, not in order to enjoy a life of leisure, but in order to lighten our labors. You should sing as wayfarers do. Sing, but continue your journey. Don't be lazy, but sing to make your journey more enjoyable. Sing, but keep going. And that's what we do. We come together and we sing these songs to our Lord, uh, being reminded of who he is as we continue our journey towards eternity. So that's maybe why we sing. But what should mark these songs? Apart from our stylistic preferences, what should mark the worship of the people of God? And uh, with that in mind, we turn to the gospel of John chapter 4. This is a famous scene in the life of Jesus. We'll be picking up in verse 19, but let me give you the background here. Jesus is with his disciples. Uh, they are traveling in Samaria. His disciples have gone to get food. 
Um, I don't know if they're going to Taco Bus or Checkers or wherever they're going, but they've gone ahead to get food. Jesus has sat down at Jacob's well uh, in Samaria, and he's sitting at the well, and a woman comes to the well. We're told that it's around like noontime. It's later on the hottest part of the day. And Jesus says to the woman, hey, can you get me something to drink? Because I don't have a bucket to get anything out of this well. And the woman is shocked that Jesus talks to her. Uh, And for us, we we actually probably should do a little bit of background work here because it's actually going to help us understand worship a little bit better better as we go forward. Uh, This woman is shocked that Jesus talks to her because she is a Samaritan. Uh, You may not be aware of this. Um, Racism is not a new thing. Uh, Racism has actually been a thing for as long as there's been races. And in Jesus's day and age, well, I almost took that paper with me. Um, in Jesus's day and age, there was racial tension that was boiling over between a group called the Samaritans and the Jews. And the root of this tension kind of goes a couple hundred years back when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They carried off with them a huge number of people, but there were a few who stayed behind. And those people who stayed behind were the Samaritans. And they intermarried with all of the other pagan nations, and they broke a lot of the commandments of God. And so uh, the Jewish people who remained faithful and didn't break the law and intermarry with the other nations and worship pagan gods, they had this hatred for the Samaritans. The Samaritans, in turn, hated the Jewish people. Uh, They hated the Jewish people so much that they threw out everything except for the first five books of the Old Testament. So the Samaritans didn't recognize the prophets. They didn't recognize the Psalms or, or anything else after Deuteronomy. And so there is this tension that boils over to the point that they don't talk to each other. It's almost, it's almost if I can pull some obnoxious cultural commentary, uh, it's almost like the, uh, the mudbloods in Harry Potter, right? Where there's this hatred between uh, these people of a, of a mixed race. And um, if you don't read Harry Potter, just ignore the fact that I'm a loser. But, but, there, is, but there is this tension boiling over uh, because the Samaritans had not been faithful to what God had said, which was to not intermarry with the pagans. The Samaritans had rejected this section of scripture, which is like most of the Old Testament, and they'd actually built their own temple. Uh, they, the Jewish people had, through the line of David, built the temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. They'd built their own temple in Samaria. And so Jesus sits down at this well in Samaria and starts talking to this Samaritan woman, and she's shocked by it. Because Jesus is stepping all over the racial lines of who should or shouldn't talk to whom. And there's no indication that Jesus says, hey, I'm Jewish, let me have some water. Uh, She just knows by looking at him, which probably says something for our white Anglo-Saxon Jesus in our stained glass windows. So she's shocked by this, and Jesus begins to talk to her about her life and some of the shortcomings she's had. She's committed adultery. She's divorced a number of men. The man she's with right now isn't her husband. And after really demonstrating his authority, she makes this statement in verse 19. The woman says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, which is the most redundant thing I've ever heard. And so she begins to ask him a question based on uh, the Samaritan and Jewish conflict. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
So in many ways, the Samaritan woman tries to get Jesus to jump into the worship wars of their day. Uh, You Jewish people say this mountain, and my people say that mountain. So you seem like a prophet. You seem to know a lot of stuff about me that I've never told anyone. So which mountain, oh mighty prophet, which one should I be worshiping on? And, And Jesus doesn't take the bait in any way, shape, or form. He goes, um... You kind of do have it wrong, um, but I'm just going to be real with you. That's not going to matter in like a couple years. Actually, uh, more than that, it doesn't matter at this point. The time is coming and is now here where your petty debate about location is going to be insignificant. And so then Jesus lays before the Samaritan woman two specific governing principles for Christian worship. Uh, He says the worship that the Father is going to seek is no longer going to be on this mountain or that mountain. It's going to be in spirit, and it's going to be in truth. Jesus doesn't lay out genres. Uh, Jesus doesn't lay out plans for a cathedral, even though I really like cathedrals. He says these are the two governing principles of Christian worship, spirit and truth. So what does this mean? What does it mean for the way that we sing? What does it mean for the church when we come together? Well, let's tackle the first thing first. Jesus first says that the Father is looking for people who worship in spirit. Now, this is a non-capital spirit, which means that he's probably not talking about the Holy Spirit, uh, but rather he's talking about our emotions and our affections. Uh, Very often when the Bible talks about the spirit, the heart, all these things are intertwined. Uh, Jesus is talking about a worship uh, that is affectionate, that is emotional, Uh, that is driven by strong feelings of desire and love for the Lord. When he talks about spirit, he says, the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit with their affections. Now, this probably makes some of us uncomfortable. I'm just going to be honest. In worship, I'm not a terribly emotional person. I'll sit down or I'll stand up. I'll sing the songs louder or softer. I can't think of one time that I've ever raised my hands in worship. I very rarely cry in worship. I've certainly never fallen on the ground in worship. Um, People getting really emotional kind of makes me uncomfortable because I don't know what to do with my hands. Just kind of, okay, go on. But here's the reality. Uh, This is the reality that is uniform throughout Scripture, and it's it's here in Jesus' teaching. You cannot encounter the true and the living God. You cannot come face-to-face with his mighty deeds and be unaffected. And that is not simply an intellectual affection. That is an emotional affection. If we encounter the living God, we are affected by it emotionally. God does not simply make us intellectual creatures, but he gives us feelings. Those feelings are meant to be expressed in the worship of the true triune God. Uh, There's a religious studies scholar that I almost totally disagree with, except for on this point, named Rudolf Otto. Uh, And I remember in my undergraduate degree, he there was this one concept that he was very famous for uh, that we studied over and over again. Uh, It's called the Mysterium Tremendum. And you don't need to write this down. This is just your fun fact for the day. It's the mystery that repels is what that translates to. And this is basically the the point that he made is that every time, especially in the Bible, uh, but really across cultures, anytime somebody encounters God, there is this mysterium tremendum. People are affected by it. And almost always it's crushing. 
People collapse in fear. They're terrified. They fall on the ground. They have this greater recognition of their sin. Uh, They are overwhelmed. They are crushed by the weight of experiencing the Lord. If you want to see this played out in scripture, you can look at Isaiah's vision of the throne room of heaven where he sees the Lord high and lifted up and he falls on his face as one dead and says, woe is me, I am undone. And this is the reality, is that Jesus says that our worship should be marked by emotion, by affections. If you are like me and you are more intellectual in your Christian life, I just want you to know that an intellectual, cold, sterile faith will not survive. Intellectual, sterile Christianity is not enough. God has given us emotions and sentiments. He desires that we worship him through them, but there are pitfalls to simply spirit worship. Spirit worship sounds like idolatry. Worship simply in our affections. Uh, The first and foremost is that we as people are selfish, and we primarily like to celebrate the good feelings, except for those of us who maybe watch really sad movies and like to revel in our misery. But very often, uh, churches that that emphasize very heavily the affections in worship, they almost always trend towards the positive ones and think we're really nailing this spirit thing. We're really nailing this uh, affections-based worship. We've got people clapping. They're jumping up and down. They're shouting uh, at the goodness of the Lord. People are smiling. Uh, This is great. We're worshiping God in this way. But God didn't just give us good feelings. And there are times where the right response is not happiness. See Isaiah in the throne room of heaven, recognizing his sin. And so if we truly want to honor what the Father's seeking, that there would be worship in spirit, then our songs don't just need to be marked by rainbows and butterflies and unicorns pooping out sunbeams. Our songs need to be marked by sorrow. Our songs need to be marked by confession of sin. That's actually the role of the Holy Spirit in in Jesus' teaching, according to John, that he will convict the world. So one mark of the Spirit's work in our worship is repentance. And if the only thing our worship is marked by is joy, then the Spirit's not been given full reign. If there's not repentance and confession and turning from sin in our worship, if there's not songs that are born out of grief and mourning, but a willingness to rest in the goodness of God in spite of these things, we're not even doing justice to scripture. See, half of the Psalms, which are my soul is crushed to the point of death. I will hope again in God, but things are awful. So when we say to worship in spirit, we're not just talking about happy songs. We're talking about complaints, laments, doubts, repentance, confession, gratitude, all of these things. That's one danger is that we only focus on uh, the positive aspects of our lives in Christ. Uh, The the next danger is that churches that only acknowledge uh, spirit is that we run into emotional anarchy that things are simply governed by our emotions and they're not anchored in the truthfulness of Holy Scripture. I remember a number of years ago, I was, um, I was asked to lead worship at this Bible study and I probably should have said no, uh, but I didn't. And they said, yeah, if you wanna just pick like two or three songs, um, don't, don't, worry about, don't worry about more than that because we'll just have you play them for a couple hours. And then, um, and I went, what? <laughs> A couple hours? Yeah, yeah, we're just going to kind of feel it out. And if you want to pick like a verse to talk about or something too, that would be good. Um, so I said, okay. And so I show up with my 
dinky, terrible guitar, and I show up with my verse or two picked out to talk through. And what followed um, was people sitting in a circle and saying, I just feel like God wants me to say strength. And then everybody would go, hmm. And then somebody would go, I'm just feeling freedom. Mm. And I kept going, so this verse that I picked out, <laughs> that I, I, I was thinking we could maybe talk about what we know God said because he's spoken in his word, and they, 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 there was no desire for that, right? Because there had been this emotional anarchy. We'd given so much room to our emotions that we weren't willing to have our sinful emotions corrected by scripture. So, so there are dangers, but understand that these dangers don't mean that God doesn't desire that when we worship him, we worship him with earnesty, that we worship him with love and affection. That doesn't mean every Sunday you come in here and you feel something. And just because you don't feel something doesn't mean that God's not moving, but it does mean that if you've spent years unaffected by the profound emotional weight of the gospel, then you need to pray for the breaking of your callous heart. So Jesus says, spirit, affections, this is what he desires. The next point that he makes is that he desires that his people would worship in the truth. And this might be the answer to the problem that I ran into uh, with this Bible study. Uh, Jesus doesn't give us an either-or dichotomy. He doesn't say, I want spirit or I want truth. He says, I want both. I want your affections shaped by the truthfulness of who God is and what he has done. And this is the problem of the Samaritan woman. And this, is, I think, is why Jesus even brings it up. Uh, because they are worshiping on a mountain, and they picked that mountain because they were mad at the people of Israel. And they picked that mountain out of ignorance because they rejected half of Scripture. And so their worship was based on emotional chaos, and it was based on an outright rejection of Scripture as the governing principle of how we worship. This was the problem of the Samaritans. This is why he says you worship what you do not know because you only have the first five books and God did stuff after Deuteronomy. Our spirit, our affections, our our energy uh, and our emotions and worship, they are not meant to run rampant because we recognize from scripture that the heart is deceitful and that what we feel is always to be tested by what God has said when he spoke. Which means... That when we gather, our songs need to be rooted in the word of God. Our songs need to be rooted in the works of God. Our songs need to be rooted in the gospel. Now, sometimes this makes for more difficult songs with more words. Uh, And sometimes this makes for songs that may not necessarily be as catchy as songs that don't carry as much thought behind them. Um, behind them. Um, But here's the reality. I'm just experiencing this right now. Uh, Is if we only ever base our motion or our worship on emotion, which with the right lighting and the right, um, the right builds and swells and ups and downs in the music can be manipulated. Uh, Essentially what we're doing spiritually is feeding ourselves candy. And I love candy, and I love food that's bad for me. But when it comes time to run a marathon, that candy will not help you. That candy will not carry you. And as fun as the candy was at the time, when things start to go, like Glenn Campbell, is that really all that you want left in your mind is candy? 
the worship of the people of God is not simply intellectual, callous, cold, frozen, chosen, doctrinal songs. But there needs to be true things about God in it. Because as we sing, we are teaching the people of God about the, the God that we're singing to. Jonathan Edwards, um, the famous Puritan preacher, actually says it in this way. He says, um, My job in the way of my duty is to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can, provided they are affected with nothing but truth. And with the affections that are not disagreeable to the nature of what they are affected with. If I can break down some Puritan language for you, the point that he's making is this, that when we come together as the people of God, I hope that you are moved. I hope that you are um, passionate. I hope that you are zealous in your worship. I hope that, uh, that, that your affections are turned upward towards who God is and what he's done. And I hope that you are moved by nothing less than the truth. I hope that your spirit-led worship is worship that's also governed by truth because I can make you feel all kinds of things and tell you all kinds of things that just aren't true. But the beauty is that the truthfulness of the gospel is enough and that the profound reality of what God has done in history and in Christ is enough to stir our hearts towards him again week in and week out over and over the people of God are a worshiping people, and we worship in spirit and in truth. We don't divide them. We don't overemphasize one or the other. God desires both, and that is the worship that the Father seeks. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and Lord, we just pray that you would, uh, God, that you would stir up our hearts. There are so many weeks, Lord, where I know I come in and I just feel cold. Um, familiarity uh, can sometimes breed callousness. And God, I don't want that for us. Uh, Lord, I want us week in and week out to marvel at what you've done. God, I pray that we would marvel at it once again. Uh, Lord, as we get ready to take communion, which is this sign and this reminder of what Christ has accomplished, God, I pray that it would move us. Uh, Lord, as we recognize um, this truth, uh, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.